0: So Ruth chapter two, the NIV gives the heading, Ruth meets Boaz in the grain field. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink, from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland, and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves, and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles, and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. "'The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz,' she said. "'The Lord bless him,' Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. "'He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead.' "'She added, "'That man is our close relative. "'He is one of our guardian redeemers.' "'Then Ruth the Moabite said,' He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work with him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz, glean until the barley and wheat harvesters, harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, may the Lord bless that reading from his word.
1: Okay, uh, I've really uh, loved uh, the chance to uh, look at the book of uh, Ruth again, and I have to say it has been an enormous blessing to me, so any blessing it is to you is entirely a side product, because I've just had a ball. Looking at uh, Ruth. Let's just pray together because I need to pray. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Please, Lord God, help us to find reasons to sing again this morning. (coughs) Amen. I'm um, deeply indebted to uh, my good friend George Hawkins from Beeston Free Church for many, many things. But especially this morning for uh, this. Uh, He uh, tells this story in the context of the book of Ruth. It's a mural of uh, Jesus, Behold the Man, by a 19th century painter called Elias Garcia Martinez. This uh, mural has held pride of place in the sanctuary of Mercy Church in Spain for more than 100 years. As you can see, it is in fairly serious need of restoration. And in the summer of 2012, it got it. Uh, an 80-year-old parishioner called Cecilia Jimenez took it, on its, took it on herself to give that mural the attention it needed. Despite her good intentions, the restoration project didn't turn out well. (laughs) The uh, New York Times said it was probably the worst art restoration project in history. The BBC said that uh, the delicate brushstrokes of Martinez had been buried under a haphazard spattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus, said the BBC, now resembled a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey (laughs) in an ill-fitting tunic. Cecilia defended her her decision to undertake the restoration. She said, We've always fixed everything ourselves in this church. It would be a great motto, wouldn't it? To see that's a strap line on your website. We always fix everything ourselves in this church. Well, yesterday morning we began to think about the story of restoration and redemption. We, we were left with a, a picture of loss and, and life hanging in the balance. Chapter 1 came to an end with two widows in Bethlehem, the house of bread. that there, there was a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, both shattered by the loss of their husbands, holding on to no one else, it seems, but each other. They'd returned to God's promised land, but they are without protection and without much hope for the future. And it's going to take more than law to redeem this situation. Through the um, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we are both sinners and sufferers in this fallen world. It's not just the pain of the past that gets us, it's fear of the future. So uh, welcome back to our meeting this morning, Naomi. Scarred by the past, fearful of the future, She knows that God is a God of grace, but she doubts whether he can be a God of grace to her. The one whose name means pleasant has been broken by the bitterness of her circumstances. Could God ever fill her emptiness again? And yet chapter 1 isn't unremittingly bleak. It contains hints and glimpses that there's more to this story than meets the eye. Do you remember the ironies that build up in the early verses? The irony of there being a famine in the house of bread, would you believe it? The irony of a man whose name means the Lord is my king, having to flee his home just to survive. The man whose home is in the land of promise, seeking salvation in the land that is cursed. And a woman whose experience is bitter, but whose name means pleasant. These things are meant to alert us, aren't they, to the fact that something's going on here. God is up to something. Through this tragedy and through this loss, he is at work. And those of us who read this book, like those who read it the first time, are supposed to read between the lines to expect something big to happen. Well, as we read chapter two a few moments ago, perhaps you started to get excited at the signs of hope. Signs of hope in a drama which up to now has been a story of loss. But that's all they are. They're signs. The basic issue will remain unresolved, as we shall see. So, scene one, trickles of grace. Right from the uh, start of this chapter, the author puts us in the picture. Look at verse one. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. A man whose name was Boaz. We're, We're meant to sit up and notice that. It's a a little bit like one of those quiz shows. Naomi won't hit on the answer until the end of the chapter. It will be the next chapter before the implications dawn on Ruth. But here's the answer flashing on our screen right from the beginning. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side whose name was Boaz. He's a relative. Now that shouldn't make us prick up our ears. We thought all the men in this family had died out. But here in the first verse of chapter two we discover that there is a man on the scene in the background for the moment, unrecognised by Naomi and Ruth for now. But on the scene, nevertheless, and not just any old relative, he's wealthy, and he's well-respected, it's hard to imagine a more promising man than Boaz. So could chapter 2 represent a turning of the tide? Jewish readers steeped in the law of Moses would certainly prick up their ears at this point. Based on Deuteronomy 25, an Israelite woman, widow, might look on such a man as a potential marriage partner. Someone who could solve the problem, protect the widow, raise up a family by her. I know that sounds incredibly weird to our modern ears, but it's a really important way of keeping names alive and land in the family in an Old Testament world where names and land matter. But before we get too excited about the possibilities we're brought down to earth with a sickening thud by the words that come next, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite. You see, the law might provide a way out of this mess for an Israelite widow, like Naomi. But it's going to take a lot more than law to give hope to a foreigner like Ruth. Well, at least the law can help Ruth and Naomi with the most immediate problem, the most immediate problem of staying alive. Remember, they've arrived back in Bethlehem with very little. They're poor, they're powerless, they're vulnerable. They have no man in a world where a woman needs a man to support her. Yet, as we shall see, the law of Moses legislates for cases like this, and as one of the poor, Ruth, can legitimately glean in the harvest fields, picking up what's left over after the harvesters, harvesting herself round the edge of the field where the crops are to be left for just that purpose. And that's exactly what Ruth decides to do. Remember, this isn't a modern pick your own setup where you can gather a punnet of strawberries in no time. This is hard work. Back breaking labour. But that doesn't put Ruth off. She's not afraid to humble herself, this woman, and admit her vulnerability. She is one of the poor. She is one of the destitute. She will cast herself on the mercy of someone else. She reminds me a little of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and said, fine, just let me take the crumbs that fall from the children's table. That's what's happening here. But I'm struck by the words that come next. They're, make, they're meant to make us stop and say, hang on a minute, verse 3. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Well, I never. As it turned out. That's a pretty loaded phrase, wouldn't you say? Literally, she chanced her chance upon Somehow Ruth just happens to find herself in the only man who matters in this chapter, Boaz of the family of Elimelech. As we might say, as luck would have it. What a remarkable coincidence. And once again, there's more to this story than meets the eye. Someone is guiding Ruth's steps, just as someone captured her heart in chapter one. And just now this person is taking up Ruth's cause here in chapter 2. And he wants to get us ready for something big. The problem of God's providence as I've experienced it is that it always takes ages for me to work it out. I just yes. rarely get to see it in the present and appreciate it in, in real time. God never seems to send me a commentary on this chapter of my life. He certainly never sends me a preview of the chapter to come. (laughs) At the very best, I am able to reflect on what he has been doing in the past. It's only on reflection that we see what God's been doing. And what's the lesson for us? We might not know what God is up to in our lives right now. We might not know. But listen, there is never one millisecond when the artist's brush slips or the author loses the plot? How did Peter pray? He he mentioned in his prayer that the Lord Jesus is reigning as head of the church. He's reigning and he's ruling with you in his mind and your best interests on his heart. And he doesn't just do it for you. He does it so that he can bless the world through you. He is utterly committed to working out his good purpose in your life and in mine. He is so utterly committed to it that every single detail of the restoration of his project is under his sovereign control. He leaves nothing to chance. So, scene one, trickles of grace. You can probably see where this is going, can't you? Scene two, streams of grace. (coughs) You can work out what scene three might be. At this point, of course, Ruth doesn't know it's Boaz's field, and she doesn't know anything about the relationship between him and her father-in-law's family. Apparently, while he's away in Bethlehem, she comes up to the foreman, asks permission, and starts to work. And then Boaz turns up. Boaz is extraordinarily generous. I I, I love the way the action picks up the moment he arrives. Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. They sound like a bunch of Anglicans, but I don't think they are. (laughs) Will you listen to the generosity of his words? I love this. Look again at his first words. Not, it's good to see you guys working hard this morning. Not, is that all you've done today? Not, we'll never get into the next field unless you get a move on. His first words to them are, the Lord be with you. Now they are words of life, aren't they? And I want to encourage us to learn how to speak words of life to one another. Have you ever had an experience that goes like this? You travel to church on a Sunday morning. The kids have been fighting in the car all the way, your head is pounding, one of your raging parents has frightening medical symptoms, and it is at this moment that you realise you forgot to turn the oven on. Someone at the door says, how are you? And you reply, oh, not so bad, all things considered. And even as you speak, you can see their eyes glazing over, they say, jolly good, and they walk away. Can I tell you that jolly good are words of death? Do you know what not so bad means? Not so bad always means not so good. Not so bad are the words of the timid swimmer poking a toe into the water to see if they dare go a little bit deeper. I never ever say not so good or not so bad. I I say, fine. You ask me how I am, I'm fine. Do you know what fine means? Feeling inadequate. Needing encouragement. We've got to learn to listen, brothers and sisters. We've got to learn to listen beneath the words. How many Christians are floundering today for lack of encouragement? And could some of them be here with us this week? What a wonderful opportunity this week is to speak words of life to one another. And Boaz speaks words of life to his men. Then he spots this woman he doesn't recognise. Understandably, he asks about her. Look closely at the question in verse 5. Boaz asks the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? Ooh, that sounds a little condescending to modern liberal 21st century ears, but it is a perfectly appropriate question in this culture. He doesn't ask, who is that woman? He asks, whose is that woman? Who's looking out for her? Again, he notices. He thinks. He, he cares. And so often we don't, especially us men. Eyes and Ears firmly disengaged, we approach with mouth wide open. Aboaz won't approach her directly. He, he won't infringe the rights of any other man in her life. That could bring enormous embarrassment and shame to her. But again, just as we start to get a little tingle, just as we start to get a hint that there might be something going on here, there's staring us there, staring us in the face. Listen to the foreman's reply, verse 6. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Do, do you see it? No mention of a name. But that same damning reality twice. She's the Moab, Moabite from Moab. You want to know who she is, Boaz? I'll tell you. She belongs to the gods of the Moabites. And again, just like yesterday, our hopes are shattered on the rocks of Deuteronomy 23. The Moabites are a people cursed by God. Do you see what's happening here? Yes, this woman is the one who came back with Naomi. Yes, she's the one everyone's talking about in town. Yes, she's the one about whom we've heard so much. Yes, she's the one who's done all the right things. She came to the field. She cast herself on the mercy of the uh, the servants. and, And she's worked hard all day. She's no beggar. She's no sponger. She's this woman. But you can't change the facts. The facts are the facts. She comes from Moab. So what happens next takes us by surprise. The law might require Boaz to let Ruth glean in his fields, but that's all. Boaz goes a whole lot further. He approaches her. He goes out of his way to be kind to her. He offers her protection and a place among his harvesters. This is not law. This is grace. Come back with me to verse 2, will you? And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let's go. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor." Well, here she is. She's found favor in the eyes of Boaz. But the problem won't go away. In verse ten, she draws attention to it herself. Why have I found f- such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Our psychologist friends would have a field day with this, of course. Ah, lack of self-esteem, that's her problem. But Ruth's not suffering from lack of self-esteem. She's not just strong in the IQ department. She's strong in the emotional intelligence department too. Attractive as she might be, diligent as she undoubtedly is. In the end, she knows. She's still a foreigner. She knows she can't rely on the law to save her. She has no claim to make on the law at all, none. She must rely on something more than law. And that's exactly what Boaz extends to her. Look at his generous words in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. My daughter. Does that remind you of anyone? I think it should. We, We learn a lot about people by the way they deal with the vulnerable and the less privileged than themselves. Ruth is no Disney princess. She doesn't even have the status of one of Boaz's servant girls and yet he doesn't judge her for her pedigree, her past, her present. He meets her where she is. My daughter, listen to me. And his generous words lead to generous actions. Look at verse 8 again, will you? Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the w- after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever, whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Effectively, he brings her onto the harvesting team. Not casual labour anymore. Staff now with all the rights and privileges that go with that. As Boaz ponders everything he's heard about Ruth, an irony dawns on him. Look at verse 11 again. She's a woman who has shown mercy herself to Naomi. Like Father Abraham, hundreds of years ago, she left her home, she left her family, she left her God to come to a foreign land. And she, like the nation of foreigners that left Egypt, has been gathered under the wings of the living God. Remember what God told his people at Mount Sinai? You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And Moses picked up that imagery again shortly before his death. Like an eagle stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them on its pinions, the Lord led Israel. And later the psalmist David will be inspired by the same thought in Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And what Boaz sees and what all these writers speak about is happening here and now in the very experience of Ruth. Verse 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, the Moabite, the one who has no right to mercy, has cast herself on mercy. And Boaz will treat her not just with law, but with grace. Here's a question. Does uh, Boaz notice Ruth simply because of what she's done? And does he reward her simply because of what she's done? Well, yes, but, but what has Ruth done? Why did she abandon Moab and return to Bethlehem with Naomi? Because she's come to pin her hopes on the living God. Pinning her hopes on the living God doesn't earn her this blessing but pinning her hopes on the living God does enable her to receive this blessing. But the generosity doesn't stop here in the verses that follow. Boaz does much, much more than the law requires when it's time to eat. He provides for her bread, wine, roasted grain. Generously, he provides for her without making her an object of ridicule. She eats until she's satisfied. This is probably the best meal this girl has had for years. And don't miss the glorious hint of the gospel here, will you? A foreign woman being welcomed to the Lord's table. But Boaz isn't just generous, he's also wise. Ruth eats with the reapers, he does not draw attention to her. Quietly, without her knowledge, he instructs his men to pull out great hunks of barley and leave them on the ground for her to pick up. He doesn't parade his interests so that people say, ooh, look who's caught the boss's eye then. But quietly behind the scenes, he makes sure she receives mercy. And at the end of the day, when she's finished threshing what she's gleaned, she returns home with as big a sack of barley as she can carry. It is an extraordinary haul for one day's work. It is grace, it is overflowing grace and mercy. Boaz goes way beyond anything the law requires or convention demands. And he does it at his own cost. This may be free of charge to Ruth, but only because it is not free of charge to Boaz. And isn't that the nature of grace? Great riches at Christ's expense. Grace does not stop to count the cost. Grace never says enough's enough. Grace never says this far and no further. And don't we need to get a handle on this? Because how are other people going to experience the generosity of God if they can't experience it through us? God doesn't usually use carefully crafted programs. He doesn't use well-organized meetings. Dare I say it, he doesn't use well-oiled organizations, like FIC, He uses generous people. Uh, and brothers and sisters, we need to get a handle on the, the importance of generosity. God's mercy normally comes through generous people. Listen to this from James chapter 2. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Not stainless steel morality, but warm-hearted generosity. And I wonder if it's worth us stopping just for a moment to ask, what is it that's happened in Boaz's life that has produced this kind of generosity? What's happened in his life to ripen the fruit of the Spirit in him? (coughs) I think we find the answer in an unlikely source. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 1. It's just one of those dreaded family trees. Do you remember? The sort that really probably should be in a table at the back of the Bible along with the weights and the measures and the maps. Or not? Listen. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Why is Boaz able to rise above the fact that Ruth is the Moabite from Moab? Why is he able to show her such mercy? Because Boaz himself was born into a family that had received that kind of mercy from God himself. What makes people generous is generosity. We show measureless mercy to others when we know that we have received measureless mercy from Him. But there is another lesson here. A, a, a lesson that I wonder is incredibly important for. Those of us in gospel work for ministers and missionaries, we also need to learn how to receive mercy. Ruth doesn't turn down Boaz's kindness because she's a strong and an independent woman. No, she is a gracious recipient. Look, look again at verse 10. Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And the truth is that we must be willing to, sh- to receive God's grace from others as well as to show it to others. Maybe God's leading you through some pretty deep waters just now. And frankly, you do not understand what's happening in your life. Can I plead with you not to go through it alone? Don't be afraid to let others get close enough to you, to listen to you, to speak with you, to pray for you, to help you. Listen to a rather moving story from an American pastor called James Sullivan. His nickname was Frog. I've no idea why he was called Frog. Maybe because he was always jumping around from one thing to another. Until... One day, the jumping stopped. His wife, Caroline, cracked under the strain of his ministry. She had to go into a psychiatric hospital. Later, Frog wrote about his feelings. They ranged from resentment and anger through to confusion and guilt. He he had to tell his two children, Cathy and Scott, what had happened, And, and this is what he said. It is quite long, so I'll just read it to you. After I put the kids to bed and prayed with them, my little Kathy saw me cry for the first time in her life. I think that night she learnt something about her dad. That I was a man, human, hurt, alone and lonely. I headed for the fridge to mix a drink. At that very moment I think I acknowledged that I was through with God for good. Through with the Christian life I'd known because I'd given everything to him and ended up with nothing but a hurt, lonely, confused wife and a nest of problems. I was really angry, knowing that I had hurt Caroline deeply. As I headed for the fridge, the doorbell went, and an unbelievably wonderful man, Jack Johnston, was standing in the doorway. I'd already prayed earlier that night, and in the middle of my prayer, I told God I didn't understand it. I'd kept my end of the bargain, and he'd done this dastardly thing to me. I didn't even know where he was or what he wanted from me any longer. I'd given him my lifeblood and my family, and now he was trying to destroy me. As Jack walked into the room, he grabbed me and hugged me tight. For ten, maybe fifteen minutes, he hugged me so tight and with such strength of caring that my anger and bitterness and disappointment seemed transferred from my tragic soul to his very being. He never quoted verses. He never said everything was going to be all right. He just blessed me with a short prayer and walked out of the door carrying my hostilities into the night. I didn't understand it then. I don't pretend to understand it now. I still don't understand what happened to Caroline. But because of Jack, I was able to accept the situation. The love we received from Christians in the next few months was astounding, overwhelmingly beautiful. Meals were brought into our homes for a solid month. People came to make our beds, clean our house. I received money in envelopes through the mail from unknown sources to help with medical expenses that soared out of sight. Here we go. The thing that destroys a good many of us as Christians and I think I want to say particularly a good many of us as Christian workers, is our inability to relate to each other in a warm, honest, compassionate sort of way. Even with those to whom I was close, I failed in this endeavour. I was so busy being a doing Christian. Boy, that was certainly me. I forgot what God called me to be. For so long I didn't know what a Christian was supposed to I didn't know that a Christian was supposed to let someone love him I thought he was also always supposed to be loving someone else I didn't think it was necessary to let anyone love me including Caroline It seemed that in the context of my Christian faith you were adequate if you could love people but considered inadequate if you let them love you, why do you think God opposes the proud? It's not just that He's unwilling to help them, it's their unwilling to let Him help them. We must learn to receive as well as to give, which is why. Weeks like this week are just so important. Well, we need to move on. You worked that out already. <coughs> Scene three, floods of grace. Th- the story brings us back to Naomi. Imagine the kind of day she's had, wondering what's been going on down in the barley field. She hears the key turn in the lock. She rushes out to meet Ruth. She can't believe it as Ruth comes staggering in under the weight of the barley she's gleaned. How did this happen? But her delight turns to amazement when she discovers who's behind it. Verse verse 19, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. Boaz, of course. Suddenly pennies start dropping and lights start coming on. Look at verse 20, the Lord bless him. The Lord has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. That man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And Naomi begins to see what Ruth can't possibly see yet, that God has not forsaken them after all. Yes, the hand of the Lord is at work to bring relief into their distress, but much, much more. Yes, Boaz is kind. He's the one who instructs the harvesters to leave great hunks of barley lying around for Ruth to find. It's Boaz, but in Boaz's kindness and through Boaz's kindness, Naomi begins to see once again that God is kind and maybe even willing to be kind to her. Oh, the power of grace! It's at this point we're reminded that Boaz is closely related to Naomi and Ruth, close enough that he can take the dead relative's widow and raise up a family for her. That's the Leviticus 25 way of providing um, a childless Israelite widow. And, And Boaz is closely related to Naomi, close enough to do just this. And again, our hopes are raised to the point where we realize, aha, not only a good man but a close relative, yes, he can do it. We can begin to hear the the cogs turning, not just pennies dropping, not just lights coming on, but wedding bells starting to ring. Hey, this is good. And then, and then we're brought back to earth with a bump. And we're reminded of the facts, the troublesome, interfering, inconvenient facts. Look how verse 21 begins. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, For all this extraordinary goodness and care, at least from a human point of view, life still hangs in the balance. And at the end of the chapter, things are still pretty much as they were at the end of chapter one. Ruth still a foreign woman, still a widow in a strange land, still someone who sought refuge in God and received a measure of mercy from God. But notice how the chapter closes, verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The harvest has come and the harvest has gone. The season of life and hope is over. And here's the question we're meant to ask this morning, I think. Is that it? Kindness. Extraordinary kindness, kindness that goes way beyond law, kindness that mirrors the very kindness of God himself. It's great, but is it great enough? Is there anything more? Part of our problem when we read the Bible is we know how it ends. It's a bit like watching an Agatha Christie movie, isn't it, a thriller, when you know all the time who done it. Well, we're in danger of missing the suspense along the way. And we miss the suspense along the way here in Ruth's story because we know how the thing finishes. But we're meant to get caught up in the drama just as we are caught up in the drama of our own lives. Where will I end up? What is God doing in me? What does tomorrow hold for me? When I look at the family photos in ten years' time, where will I be? Will I have anyone standing beside me? Will I still have anyone standing beside me? How will I survive in a a world that is frankly becoming more and more hostile to my Christian confession. And so the, sto- the questions in my own personal drama go on. And the story of Ruth has something very important to say to me this morning. In this story, for all the suspense, again and again and again, there are enough telltale signs to let me know that God is involved, personally, intimately deeply involved in everything that's going on in my life. You and I know that Ruth didn't just happen to rock up into the field of Boaz. God took her there. Just as God brought her to Bethlehem in the first place. Just as God won her heart and brought brought her to himself in the land of Moab. To be sure, she's a foreigner. Yet she's already received time and time again. More than this, she's received grace. How do I know how my drama will end? Well, Paul puts it beautifully like this as he writes to his friends in Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Isn't that wonderful? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. This is what undergirds my prayer. This is what gives me such confidence when I pray for you. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. I don't know about you. I have absolutely no confidence in me. Not a great deal in you, to be honest. But I have total confidence in him. We're not surprised that Ruth doesn't see it yet. We know the end, she doesn't. We can't quite forget that her name turns up in that family tree in Matthew chapter one. But we do know this. For all the elements of suspense and surprise in your drama and mine, there's one massive difference between Ruth and us. Standing between her life and ours, stands the cross of Jesus. The cross that brings certainty into our lives that she could never quite have known. In the cross, you and I have proof positive that God has brought his hesed, his covenant love to bear in your life and mine. God has noticed us. He's turned his face towards us. He is gracious to us. He will give us peace. In the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have the assurance that God really is in control. He's doing his work of restoration. His brush never slips. God will never make a monkey out of you. Why don't we spend a few moments praying together? Shall we do that? Maybe just a moment or two of quiet, shall we? And then maybe we can gather our chairs around and pray with each other.